All right, we're in Ezekiel tonight. If you want to open your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 36. I want to say we're getting into the exciting part of Ezekiel, but the whole book has been just a thrill, every chapter. Most people are familiar with Ezekiel 38 and 39, the famous passages about the invasion of Israel by the coalition of nations, and we're building up to that, but uh, what a joy to see this wonderful prophet. We're going to look at the first 15 verses. I'm going to quote a Jerusalem Post article from 2009, so it's not too old. It says, In honor of the 50th anniversary of Israeli settlement in the Arava Desert, a one-day conference was held at the Sapir Center. Amnon Navat presented a brief history of Arava Desert Settlement, focusing how, on how persistence and vision have overcome seemingly insurmountable obstacles. Fifty years ago, a professor of agriculture by the name of Yitzhak Arnon visited the Arava and concluded that it was impossible to settle this region or to farm it. During the first years of the state, there was an army presence in the area, and furthermore, malaria was a problem. It was basically a malaria swamp is what this was. In 1958, Shai Ben Elayahu and Hagai Porat decided that they wanted to found a community at Ien Yahav in the central Arava. The various government agencies refused to support them, demanding a letter of intent from someone official. So they went straight to Ben Gurion, who turned red with anger when he heard how they had been refused. He wrote them the letter, and in 1959, ten families arrived in Ian Yahav. They tried growing tomatoes, which would have been my first choice. In 1962, they prepared 250 acres for agriculture. The really big breakthrough came a few years later when Shima Blot invented drip irrigation and harvest yields increased. Today, over 6,000 people live in the Arava and they supply 60% of Israel's fresh vegetables and more for export. I think that the main thing one needs to live here is faith. In another 50 years, I believe the Arava will change even more than anyone today could envision in their wildest imagination. The last 50 years has seen the desert of Israel blossom into a world leader in agriculture. It's exactly what you expect from reading Bible prophecy regarding the last days. For example, in Isaiah 27, 6, you read, Those who come, he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. It's really hard to find statistics, or it was hard for me, for fruit production. This is an admittedly very old one, but it shows the exponential growth of the fruitfulness of Israel. Here's the quote. Israel in 1967 supplied only 11% of the world crop of grapefruit, but by 1970, three years later, her production had increased by 300%. And so that's very old. I don't know what they're doing with grapefruits now in Israel, but uh, you get the idea. It's a desert. It's a swamp malaria infested and then through their persistence and the help of the Lord they've made the desert blossom and they're an agricultural leader. Now Ezekiel 37 is a passage that expresses both the restoration of the land of Israel in the last days and the return of dispersed Jews to that land. Let me say a word about God uh, and Israel and the promises or the covenants that he made with them. A covenant, we would say, is an agreement or a contract between two parties. The Bible describes two types of covenants, conditional and unconditional. 
Obviously, a conditional covenant is one which both parties must fulfill their part for the covenant to be valid. An unconditional covenant is one that remains valid even if one party fails to keep his part. In this kind of covenant, only one faithful party is necessary to keep the promises. God made some unconditional covenants with Israel. We call them the Abrahamic covenant, uh, the uh, Palestinian covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. He also made some conditional covenants like the Mosaic covenant where he promised to do certain things if the Jews uh, did certain things. But among his unconditional promises to them is that they would be a nation forever, have their land forever, have a king forever, a throne forever, and a kingdom forever. Those are things that God will fulfill uh, no matter what Israel does because they are unconditional promises and covenants. Now, the Scriptures are clear that these covenants were given to Israel alone and that the nation of Israel will exist forever and that God will never forsake Israel. The church, you and I, the body of Christ, we're a new creation which was a mystery God revealed to the Apostle Paul. The church is blessed through grace by being identified with Christ in His death and resurrection. I think if you've been around Calvary Chapel any length of time or other good Bible teaching churches or listening to good teaching on the radio, you know that there's a distinction between Israel and the church. However, sometime in your life you're going to encounter folks whose teaching is that Israel uh, was replaced by the church, that God is not really dealing with Israel anymore. And you and I, we scratch our heads and we think, how could anybody think that? But hey, a lot of people think that. A lot of people teach that. And as you get drawn into that, you uh, are, are kind of moved by some of their intellectual arguments. But the truth is, uh, Israel is Israel. When God talks about Israel, He means Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the church is something totally different. Uh, and so bear that in mind. Always tuck that away. Uh, you'll never understand Bible prophecy. A lot of people, they don't understand Bible prophecy because they don't distinguish between Israel and God's plan for Israel and the church and God's plan for the church. Now, this first section of Ezekiel 36, verses 1 through 15, they're about the land of Israel. They remind us we have witnessed a modern miracle. Israel is a nation again in her land. And so, verse 1, And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Now, God wanted Ezekiel to prophesy to the mountains. God had made unconditional promises to Israel regarding the land. They would possess it forever. But at the time of this writing and for centuries afterward, they were dispossessed from their land, dispersed all over the world. None of that could nullify God's plan because God had unconditionally promised them that the land would be theirs. And so this is a prophecy that is looking forward to Israel being uh, restored to their land as a nation again. And so in verse 2, thus says the Lord God, because the enemy has said of you, aha, the ancient heights have become our possession, therefore prophesy and say, prophesy and say thus says the Lord God, because they made you desolate and swallowed you up on every side so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations and you are taken up by the lips of talkers and slandered by the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, the valleys, the desolate wastes, and the cities that have been forsaken, which became plunder and mockery to the rest of the nations all around. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely I have spoken in my burning jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom who gave my land to themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and spiteful minds in order to plunder its open country. Now, I'm told by historians that in ancient times, if a nation was dispossessed, the other nations concluded that that nation's God was not powerful enough to protect her. Thus, the God of that nation would be mocked and would be profaned. Edom, the perpetual enemy of Israel, and the other nations mocked the God of Israel as the Jews were defeated this time by Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. It seemed that the God of Israel lacked the power to help his people. Uh, Notice in verse 5, God called the land my land. He remained and remains the landlord. The fact Edom and others had driven out the Jews gave them no right to the land. They completely missed what was happening. God's love for his people, the Jews, was so intense It was so jealous that he was willing to suffer mocking by the non-believing nations while disciplining his people by driving them from the land that he had promised them. That's what's going on. And so the nations, they're looking at this saying, oh, you know, the God of Israel, he's, he's not powerful enough to protect his people. Our gods have overcome them, the gods of the Babylonians, this kind of thing. But in reality, God was saying, I will bear mocking. I will bear shame. I will bear ridicule. I will let my name go into derision because I have to deal with my wayward children. Nothing is more important than I discipline them. And because they're a nation and we're dealing on a national level, the way I discipline them is I take them out of the land that I've promised them and I bring them into captivity to Babylon so that once and for all, they will get this idea that of idolatry out of their heads. And so God is willing to bear this shame. Any of you who are parents, uh, you know that there are times that you just, you know, you're a little bit embarrassed by your children's behavior. Uh, and then you have to deal with it. And then people mock you and make fun of you. Not to your face, but they do it in Save Mark. You know, we've all done, oh, yeah, look. Uh, you know, when we do it, we do it before we have children. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, you all did it. You see these parents just struggling with their kids. And sometimes they really are struggling and they really are blowing it. You know, I mean, they and you think, man, when I have kids, I'm going to be so on top of that. My kids are going to be just, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Hello. uh, How are you? You know, can I help you? Uh, You know, this kind of a thing. And then your kids sooner or later, there's that event. The event happens, whatever it might be. It's at the worst possible time, and you have to decide, is disciplining my children more important than uh, what I'm doing right now? And you say, hey, I have to go. I have to, I'm sorry. Groceries stay in the cart. Uh, You know, we have to go right now. And man, is it embarrassing. Isn't it embarrassing? And people are like, like you used to be. (laughs) But you do it. Because nothing is more important than your love for your children and you're dealing with that situation. So that's what God is doing. And Edom can think whatever Edom wants, uh, they're going to get theirs. Uh, Christianity has taken a lot of hits over the 30 years I've been saved. Lots of very public scandals, some national, 
Others more local. They happen all the time. God's love for his church, though, is so intense, it's so jealous that he's willing to suffer that kind of mocking by non-believers in order to discipline his saints publicly, if necessary, to stop them from doing even more harm uh, and to show so that others will fear and he'll bring people into line. And so, you know, the Lord puts himself out there for us. It's not a lack of power. God created the earth in six days. Uh, I mean, there's no lack of power. He rides the clouds. He's, you know, I mean, read parts of the book of Job and it'll terrify you, the power of God in a good way. Uh, It's for the sake of love that the Lord allows himself to be ridiculed and mocked. And so the next time you think, Lord, why did you allow that? It's probably because he loves his people and that's what he has to do. That's what he has to endure to bring things back into focus. And so in verse 6, Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, and the valleys, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and in my fury because you have borne the shame of the nations. In other words, God's going to do something to those nations that mocked and profaned. Instead of thinking themselves superior, they ought to have seen his dealings with his own people and been very afraid. I mean, if God is willing to put his beloved nation through such harsh discipline, how's he going to deal with people who are opposed to him? I mean, think about it. If you're on a national level, it's like, wow, look at what God is willing to do to his own people. We better get on board here before he decides that we're in just too much sin. Uh, You know, can you spell Sodom and Gomorrah? You know, that kind of a thing. Uh, and, And yet they miss that every time. God's dealings with Israel through the centuries should lead any thoughtful person to repentance, not anti Semitism. It only shows how twisted and deceptive, uh, deceived rather, the heart of man is that you would look at God, uh, you would look at the nation of Israel and, and, and think anything other than, I should repent while I have the opportunity. Uh, not only because I don't want to be disciplined that way, but because I want to be loved like that. I want to have a relationship with a deity who is willing to go the distance, who is willing to discipline me. And everybody, you know, whether you're a good disciplinarian or not, <clears throat> that's between you and the Lord and with your own children. You, you want to be and you understand the responsibility of that. Uh, and, and so you can see that in the Lord. So in verse 7, therefore, thus says the Lord God, I've raised my hand in an oath that surely the nations that are around you shall bear their own shame. God cannot lie. He doesn't need to say things like, let me be honest with you. I mean, can you imagine that? You know, if you're reading the Bible and God says, hey, let me be honest with you. It's like, oh, okay, wow. Or I swear. But here he emphasized the absolute truth of what he would do to those nations by saying, I've raised my hand in an oath. In other words, if you're wondering if he was really going to do these things, the answer is yes. The nations of the world should take notice of Israel's rebirth on May 14, 1948. Instead of trying to destroy her, they ought to marvel at her as a miracle, a real modern miracle. People say, well, I don't, we don't see miracles anymore. Or even conservative Bible teachers say that there aren't any real miracles in the world anymore. They were only around when Jesus was on the earth and then a little bit with the apostles and then they kind of wound down. But I would submit to you that the rebirth of the nation of Israel in their ancient homeland is a miracle. Uh, It's something unheard of. Uh, There's nothing like it in history. 
Otherwise, the time will come for those nations and they will bear their own shame if they refuse to see what God is doing with Israel. Now, verse 8, You, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they're about to come. For indeed, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. I will multiply men upon you, all the house of Israel, all of it. And the cities shall be inhabited and the ruins rebuilt. I will multiply upon you man and beast and they shall increase and bear young. I will make you inhabited as in former times and do better for you than at your beginnings. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Yes, I will cause men to walk on you, my people Israel, and they shall take possession of you and you shall be their inheritance. No more shall you bereave them of children. And so God promised to restore the land At the same time, he regathered the people to it. And that's exactly what we've witnessed over the past 60 plus years that Israel has been a nation. I've asked this before, but, you know, how much prophecy needs to be fulfilled before a person acknowledges that God is the Lord? Uh, It's it's tremendous. Verse 13, thus says the Lord God, because they say to you, you devour men and bereave your nation of children. Therefore, you shall devour men no more, nor bereave your nation any more, says the Lord God. Nor will I let you hear the taunts of the nations any more, nor bear the reproach of the peoples any more, nor shall you cause your nation to stumble any more, says, uh, says the Lord God. Besides punishing Israel's enemies and restoring Israel's land, God will also remove Israel's reproach. The mockery and the humiliation, the taunts and the scorn that Israel has been forced to endure will cease. She will once again be restored to her position of prestige as God's chosen people. Uh, doesn't it fascinate you, uh, you know, that world leaders, I mean, whatever we think of some of these guys in the Middle East, they're leaders of their nations. And they get up and they say these outrageous things like, we're going to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. We're going to destroy Israel. Uh, We won't rest until there are no more Jews in the Middle East. Who says stuff like that? Uh, I mean, what if they said that about you and the United States? You'd think, whoa, hey, we'll show you who's going to do the wiping up here. You know, I mean, it's, you know, but because anti-Semitism is so much of the fabric of the world, it's like, oh, yeah, well, they, okay, you know, they just don't like the Jews. And I I think some people think, yeah, I can even understand that. Uh, It's sad. It's sick. Uh, And and so God's saying, yeah, one of these days that's all going to end. And my people are going to uh, not be a reproach anymore. Now, in one sense, I find it hard to comment on these verses. We should just read them and then read the Jerusalem Post and realize that they either have been fulfilled or they're in the process of being fulfilled. I keep saying this, but it bears repeating. Of the estimated 2,500 prophecies in the Bible... Over 2,000 of them have already been literally and amazingly fulfilled. Uh, Jesus Christ fulfilled over 300 prophecies in his life and death alone. And mathematicians will tell you that the calculations of, of uh, you know, the odds of that happening are astronomical. They're a one with, you know, to the nth power behind it and stuff. It's, it's not possible that these things could happen randomly. 
And we're not, as we've seen through Ezekiel, some of the prophecies, we're not talking about general prophecies or, or you know, things like Nostradamus says where you think, oh yeah, maybe I could see that. Uh, but we're talking about very specific things, very specific places, people that are named, years and uh, times and all of that kind of a thing. Now, as exciting as all this is prophetically, and as I mentioned earlier, it's going to get even more exciting as we move forward in Ezekiel, there needs to be an application for us beyond just the prophetic. Uh, there is. Well, there's many, I'm sure, but there's the one I want to talk about tonight is this. Israel had acted in ways that brought God's name into reproach. So can we as Christians, but we can also live above reproach and reflect positively on the Lord. Here's a quote I ran across. It's rather long, but I think you'll uh, benefit by it. Christians play a very important role in society. They are always expected to do the right thing and live lives that serve as role models for others. Even in these times when social structures are collapsing, family life deteriorating, and everyone appears to be concerned about acquiring wealth, no matter how, a lot of people are looking up to Christians to show the way and provide the answers. Christian life is to prove that the Christian teachings are true and makes them attractive to those within and outside the church. As followers of Christ, we are under obligation to live as Christ lived. And any conduct falling short of the standards given to us in the Scriptures will invite criticism and bring reproach on the name of Christ and inevitably restrict the growth of the church. The Scriptures assure us that we can partake of the divine nature of Christ, that we can be people of integrity, people who live above reproach. Billy Graham puts it this way, When we speak of integrity as a moral value, it simply means that a person is the same on the inside as he is on the outside. There's no discrepancy between what he says and what he does, between his walk and his talk. A person of integrity can be trusted, and he is the same person alone a thousand miles away from home as he is in church or in his home. The church needs men and women who live above reproach, who are people of integrity. The church needs men and women who cannot be bought, whose word is their bond, who put character above wealth and who will make no compromise with wrong and who will be honest in small things as they are in great things. Now, usually this kind of uh, talk deteriorates quickly into behaviors that we think a Christian can or cannot participate in. Typically, they are things like drinking and dancing and smoking and tattoos, which we're going to talk about a little bit later, body piercing, watching television and movies, listening to certain music, rap music, uh, styles of dress, <laughs> styles of dress, holidays, etc., etc. I don't know why you're all laughing, but kind of a Freudian slip if we followed Freud. Uh, a group of pastors I am part of had a discussion uh, started off, we were talking about tattoos, and then somehow it got into obesity. I'm serious. It really frightened me because there were guys talking about how an obese pastor can't really minister to people because people look at you know him as a poor example. And I thought, well, he can minister to obese people. I'm just kidding. But, but no, they're serious about it. And I said wow, you guys are nuts. You know, and then some other guys defended me and said, I think Charles Spurgeon said you had to be at least 200 pounds to be a minister. Back in those days, though, they didn't have microphones. I mean, you had to have a, you couldn't have a kind of a sissy voice like this. Hi, open your Bibles, please. 
You know, I mean, he talked in pre, you know, lectures to his students. He talked, you know, he had to have a booming voice. He had to have a voice. We call it a radio voice today. And you had to have, you had to have diaphragm. You know, just, so, you know, when you went to Spurgeon school, I mean, they fed you brisket probably. And, you know, you just ate barbecue all the time till you were 200 pounds, you know. And then, man, you know, that was, those were the days. But anyway, I couldn't, I actually couldn't believe it. I mean, I just, I couldn't believe that we were talking about, I mean, I agree you should be in good shape. You know, I, I agree with it. I don't do it, but I mean, you know. I mean, I've been in shape, I've been out of shape, I've been in shape, I've been out of shape. I mean, it just, it's the way of things, and uh, I couldn't believe it, you know, that this obesity thing. So I, I you know, I said, well, I'm, you know, going to have to resign, I guess, but come sit in your church and make fun of you. Uh, but anyway, the answer to the outward behaviors are always in the heart. It's not what you can't do, it's what you ought to do, and that is represent Jesus. If something isn't inherently sinful, then you must decide if it is something that really, truly, properly represents the Lord to the lost and among the saints. Because in the end, what is going to matter is your motives. Where, uh, were they godly? Were you keeping yourself in a place where you were ready to see the Lord? Ready always to give an answer of the hope that is in you, redeeming the time spiritually because the days are evil. I can only answer those questions for myself uh, in the areas that are not inherently sinful. You know, there's some things in the Bible, I mean, they're really black and white. They're sinful. Uh, but there's a, a lot of stuff that we argue about that are in these areas of it's lawful, you can do it. Uh, but, you know, what is your motive? What's your heart? Uh, and, and that's how we answer those. I can only answer those for myself. I ask you to do the same. If you're sincere and sincerely seeking the Lord, then you'll find yourself acting in ways that do not bring His name into reproach. Paul in one place said, uh, you know, he's talking about meat sacrifice to idols. We did a whole long series in 1 Corinthians about that. You can go back and look at the, the stuff online or listen to it or whatever. But uh, basically he said, you know... Uh, I don't want to stumble my brother. And so if certain behaviors are going to cause someone else to sin, I'll have them to myself and to God. He didn't say, I'll, I'll, uh, you know, uh, I don't necessarily uh, say that they're sinful in and of themselves. He says, but I'll just, I'll just keep it to myself. And, and, and so, uh, you know, a, a lot of times I think Christians... Yeah, this is an area of liberty. It's lawful for you. But why don't you just keep it more to yourself? Don't, don't wear it on your sleeve, as it were. Don't, don't flaunt it in front of others. And so if you're sincere, you'll, you'll act in ways that don't bring God's name into reproach. If you find you are bringing a reproach on the Lord, it's no good trying to defend yourself. It means you probably aren't really being truthful about your motives. I've been in a lot of discussions with people where something will come up and all of a sudden they're like, they're mad because they think that you're attacking something. Oh, I have the liberty to do that. Man, you might have the liberty, but you don't have the attitude. I mean, it doesn't seem like you have the liberty. It seems like you have the defensibility to do it or, you know, and stuff. I'm not going to give that up. Nobody stumbled by it. So maybe you should check your heart. I'm not saying you can't do it, but, uh, you know, let's have the right attitude. Let's think about others and stuff. And so uh, check your motives. Live above reproach. That should be our goal. 
And as long as we're seeking the Lord, being sincere in our walk with him, uh, he'll tell you what you can and can't do. And then you'll look at, because you'll be looking on others with compassion, think, how can I reach this non-believer? How can I encourage this believer? And if there's something I need to avoid or give up or not mention to them, then that's fine. You know, I can, I, you know, in one place Paul said, you know, if, if eating meat stumbles my brother, I'll never eat meat again. He's obviously not from Texas or the Central Valley of California. But, you know, but we don't have that problem of meat sacrifice to idols. We have other problems. And so, uh, you know, the idea is that it's not... Outward behavior, you know, is important, but it stems from the heart and what's our motive and what's our attitude. And our motive should be compassion on the lost and on the saved to see the lost saved and the saved growing in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And everything else really gets subordinated to that. Uh, And the more I defend myself, the less I'm really having that kind of a motive I found in my life and in the lives of others. Uh, And so, uh, you know, uh, take it to heart and see what the Lord tells you. Uh, live above reproach because the Lord is coming any moment, imminently. Uh, and, and when he does, uh, I just want to be happy to see him uh, and, and know that I was ministering to somebody through my life at that moment. Amen?